Welcome, everyone, to episode 23 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. I am Tyler, and I'm here with my co-host, Abhinav. How are you doing today, Abhinav? I'm doing just great. Excited to get this one started. Yeah, let's get her going. So today we have a wonderful guest. We have got Karen Belair, the president and CEO of Shared Services West. So it's going to be interesting to learn a little bit more about the supply chain in healthcare and all those sorts of things. But first, Abhinav is going to start us off with by talking about some applications of the blockchain in healthcare. So it's going to be interesting to get those insights as well. So without further ado, let's just get her going. So some of you might be interested in the world of crypto. I don't know if you've had some gains in Ethereum or Bitcoin, but underlying cryptocurrencies is the blockchain technology. And actually, blockchain technology is something that's being applied more and more into many different industries, including the healthcare industry. So on this segment, I just wanted to quickly go over what is blockchain and what are some applications that are being used in healthcare and some projects happening globally and even in Canada investigating the use of blockchain tech in healthcare. So blockchain is a shared immutable ledger that facilitates the process of recording transactions and tracking assets in business environments. So for example, each transaction that occurs is recorded as a block of data, and this data can be anything you choose, including health information. Each block is connected to one block before it and after it. And in this way, the block confirms the exact time and sequence of transactions and the block links securely to prevent any other blocks from being removed. So in this way, any data that's put into place cannot be altered. And finally, transactions are blocked together in an irreversible chain, a blockchain. Now in healthcare, there's many different applications that blockchain could be used for. I did a quick scan using Crunchbase and found just in North America over 113 results of blockchain-focused companies uh, that are actually looking at using blockchain in healthcare. And some of the top results for uh, blockchain applications in healthcare included electronic health medical records, health administration and operations, apps focused on health interventions, benefits and insurance management, as well as healthcare supply chain. So just looking globally, what are some interesting projects happening in blockchain and healthcare? Well, I found one in Estonia, which really looked at electronic medical records. And this country began using blockchain technology in 2012 to secure health data and process transactions. Now all of the country's healthcare billing is handled on blockchain and 95% of healthcare information is ledger-based and 99% of all prescription information is digitized. Users uh, or patients in the country are actually able to access over a thousand online government portals using something called a smart card. So they've really digitized the entire experience that patients have engaging with the healthcare system. In England, another interesting example was the use of blockchain and supply chain. So two hospitals in central England, Stratford-Avon and Warwick, are expanding their use of distributed ledger, an offshoot of blockchain, for tracking vaccines and chemotherapy drugs, uh, as well as monitoring items such as COVID-19 vaccine fridge temperatures. 
So that's some interesting work happening globally. In Canada, I found a recent article where a Toronto-based research hospital, we all know University Health Network, is working with IBM, eHealth Ontario, and the Blockchain Research Institute on a blockchain health records platform. The UHN is leveraging blockchain to enable secure sharing of health data controlled by patients and based on individual consent. And the project participants have developed a mobile application allowing patients to have control over who sees their data and when they see their data. So that's some interesting applications there. I think blockchain also has a really great application for developing countries. You could imagine in countries that have poor existing infrastructures for healthcare systems to be developed, you could digitize healthcare systems and use blockchain as a way to create digital healthcare identities. And in this way, using phones, internet access, uh, and uh, a system on blockchain, people could have records that are actually secure, even if they don't have underlying electronic medical records or computers to facilitate that kind of network. So that's an interesting application as well. I think that sometimes people can get lost in the confusion of Ethereum, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and, and it being a hype. But I definitely believe in the applications of blockchain uh, in different industries, including healthcare, and something that I think people only look at more into the future. Yeah, so, I am definitely one to get lost in the sauce with the blockchain. I'm not sure what's going on half the time. So that was a great little layout you gave at the beginning there of, of how blockchain works. So that's helpful for me. And uh, yeah, as some, someone who's in healthcare, I've noticed healthcare can sometimes be a little bit slower on the uptake of new technologies. Like they're not always at the leading edge when things like blockchain or, or you know, new technologies in that uh, area are, are popping up. So good to see that the applications are making their way into healthcare and we're starting to take them on and hopefully uh, the full potential of blockchain is used in the future here. Absolutely. I think a lot of this is still very early phase investigational research. And I think there's also specific instances where a blockchain solution is helpful and others where it just might make the, sim the, comp the process more complex. So I think that's something that will take time to really clarify. And I'm just very fascinated by the range of applications that blockchain could be used for. One of them being supply chain. So increasing transparency of transactions. So you can actually know when a vendor, the ex exact time and place a vendor uh, sends some product, say pharmaceuticals to another location. And from there, uh, it can be verified that that is actually the time this transaction or this process took place in the supply chain. So on supply chain, as a good segue into our guest speaker with Karen Belair, who is president and CEO of Shared Services West. Let's get it started. Karen Belair has had a long and rewarding career in healthcare leadership. After completing her BA studies at York University, Karen progressed through various leadership roles, including Vice President at St. Joseph, Credit Valley Hospital, and Chief Operating Officer at London Health Sciences Center. Presently, Karen is the Acting President and CEO of Shared Services West. Shared Services West was established as a not-for-profit in 2001, and since its inception, the goal of SSW has been to drive value through the regionalization of strategic sourcing and supply chain services for member hospitals. 
including Halton Healthcare Services, Trillium Health Partners, and William Osler. We're so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Healthcare Hub Podcast. It's so great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no, it's just, this was a big get. And we're really excited to hear about all the different areas of your career so far. Uh, but if we just start off very early in your career, uh, you, there were about six years between your BA at York University and getting your certified general accountant designation. So mm-hmm. what did your early career look like right out of school? Was it more focused on healthcare or business? How did you start off? Listen, I came out of York University not knowing what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I had worked part-time at the then Toronto East General Hospital. Now it's the Michael Guerin Hospital. So I took a full-time job there as a payroll clerk. And those in the olden days, we still handed out paychecks at the door every couple of weeks. That then progressed to me being offered a managerial role in accounts receivable. And along the way, I had some excellent mentors. The organization itself was going through rather turbulent times. And at one time, the headline in the local newspaper called it the horror hospital because there were long waits and emerge and surgery, same things that you hear about today for hospitals were issues way back then. I was on my fourth president, that's how things were progressing at that hospital, who took me aside and said, you know, you really do have a good mind for finance. You should probably get your accounting designation. And that was the best advice a mentor gave me early in my career. Because once I completed that designation, it opened so many more doors for me. And not being the kind of person who can sit in maintenance mode, I really was looking for that next challenge and that would you know, move my career forward. So that really, really helped to move it along. So going into that designation, did you have no interest in healthcare right off the hop? Were you just thinking finance or or what was your mind there? I was just thinking that I would complete this designation and then figure it out after that. So healthcare was a bit of a, I guess, more of, you know, I landed there fortuitously not knowing really where I wanted to go, and then realized that it really aligned well with my personal values. And then I was that I was comfortable in a public sector role where my job was to make things better for people. And on that note of uh, designations, definitely in an MBA program, we have the opportunity to try out different designations or start pursuing one while in the program, would you say those designations have changed compared to the time you pursued your CPA and what kind of designations are really valuable in healthcare at this time? I don't think they've changed. I think that having a strong business skill set, whether it's financial or MBA or you know policy, whatever it may be, those tools are really critical for your success because you will apply those learnings 
in your roles as you progress through your career. So a financial skill set is something you're going to use in every job. You don't have to be a CPA, but you do need to know the basics of finance, the basics of budgeting, the basics of accounting to be successful as a leader in any organization. You can't wing it for that long. <laughs> you really got to know how to, how to spend your money wisely. So that, those are critical. So the MBAs, the you know, MHAs, the CPAs, all of those degrees are only going to expand your knowledge and skill and be important and, and make you more competitive in the marketplace. So right around the time you completed those designations, you got into the roles of vice president at Credit Valley Hospital and St. Joseph Hospital. How did you quickly jump up to that VP role? Or was it a slow build in the roles before working in a hospital? How did you get into those high up positions? Well, it was a stepping stone. I didn't, I didn't miss any of those steps. So when I left Toronto East General and went to Credit Valley, I went in there as an assistant director in finance, then became a director in finance, and then became a VP. So it was a very traditional step along the way. And thankfully, had leaders who saw the value in growing talent inside the organization and promoting talent from within to maintain that knowledge and skill and continuity because that's that's critically important that organizations look at growing people from within so i was fortunate enough to work for leaders who believed in that and and gave me those opportunities and then when i was at credit valley there were sort of a number of factors that influenced my desire to go from a community hospital to an academic center so again, making that, although it seemed like a lateral move as a VP from one organization to another, it was expanding my knowledge and skill set to get into an academic setting. And a lot of your early roles really focused on that, the realm of finance and financial goals of an institution. How do you say you, what were your strategies that you used to align those financial goals of the hospitals with some of the clinical goals or clinical outcomes that uh the clinician, clinician leaders might have? And what were your strategies to really align those goals to make sure the hospital system is uh, sustainable financially while also providing the best patient care? I know that sometimes the finance people and organizations aren't very well liked because they tend to be the bean counters. But my perspective has always been that finance is an enabler. And I wanted people to see me as somebody who helped them solve the problems that they had. And my conversations were always patient-centric. So how do we solve this problem that we're having for this patient or this population of patients? And if that was central to the decision-making, then people saw my role as an important part of the decision-making. And they didn't feel like they were going to be battling for money. I would say, look, we can find money. Money is cheap in the marketplace. That's the easiest issue to solve is getting money. The more challenging issue is how do we deliver and use these resources in a way that ensures the best outcome for patients. So as a finance person, I really needed to change that perception 
and live those values so that my role was seen as an important part of the clinical decision-making team. Yeah, as clinical or people with not a clinical background starting to make our way into business careers and, and healthcare administration, it's been interesting to navigate and talk to both clinical leaders and non-clinical leaders about how you balance those priorities and, and those values in the hospital when you're making decisions. So throughout your career, you worked in a large variety of different roles. And as you progressed, you got a lot more involved with uh, board governance. And so I'm just wondering which role throughout your career really started getting you involved with working with a board or, or interacting with a board, making you think that you were interested in working with a board? Was it when you were in more financial roles or later in more operational roles? When did you interact with the board the most and start feeling like you wanted to be a part of that? When I completed my CPA, I became involved in the local chapter of the CPA organization in Hamilton. So that was the first time that I stepped into a governance type of role and realized that there were lots of things that I could learn from stepping into that role. Because in all of the organizations that I worked, I was presenting to a board. And I realized very quickly that I needed to start to think like a board so that my presentations would be of value and make sense. Because sometimes it's hard to switch your mind from managing a situation to having governance and oversight of a situation. So the best way for me to gain that knowledge and experience was to put myself in the shoes of a board member and understand the difference in the responsibility from governance to operations. So that's really why I started down this path. And many of the boards that I have been on have been not-for-profit. I mean, that's a great place for people to start to gain that experience. There's lots of small not-for-profit organizations that are looking for people to be on their boards. So start there, get that experience, understand that relationship. It will add so much value to you in your role as a manager in an organization because it's a different conversation. That's, a, that's great early career advice for anyone too. And something we've heard from other leaders as well. Uh, John Yip, president of Kensington Health, also mentioned the value of understanding how a board uh, perceives uh, challenges happening in an organization and understanding both sides, the management and the board side. So it's great for anyone listening to the podcast to observe how leaders kind of say the similar similar things that you might never learn about otherwise. Um, so you mentioned you've been on boards of both profit and not-for-profit organizations. What would you say are some of the main differences in being part of uh, these different types of boards? Well, the perspective of the company and the purpose of the company is different. So while your role as a board member is the same in ter terms of your oversight and your responsibility, in a not-for-profit, who you are responsible to as a board and the services that are being provided or the care or whatever is different from the quote unquote shareholders. So you still have a responsibility. It's just to whom you have that responsibility. And perhaps some of the, the KPIs, performance metrics would be 
different from one organization to another, from profit to not-for-profit. Yeah, no, that's definitely, uh, again, balancing those priorities and the balance that, that comes at play is, is different between those kinds of organizations. And in terms of the different organizations you've worked for, you jumped over to McMaster University as the vice president of administration in 2000, uh, jumping from healthcare to academia. What, what drove that? How'd you get in, into that position? Well, being in an academic teaching hospital made me realize that I needed to more fully understand research and academics, that that was a bit of a blind spot, a bit of a gap in my career and my knowledge. So when this opportunity came up at McMaster, it didn't seem like such a huge leap because I worked so closely with McMaster as sort of part of this academic environment in Hamilton. Many of the players, I knew them already at the Faculty of Health Sciences, et cetera. So it just felt like going to another division, but it, it was bigger than that. And the learning that I took away from there in terms of the importance of research, the importance of academics in the healthcare environment, I'm not sure that I would have fully appreciated it had I not gone to the university and understood the perspective of the university and that and how that built my skills in future roles to be able to communicate that and to build relationships across organizations. I mean, it, it was really, really valuable to have those different perspectives. Even today, when I'm having a conversation about supply chain, I understand how academics work and think and the, you know, the importance of elements of even supply chain to them that I wouldn't have known. And so now when I have those conversations, it's a really important part that I can add to a conversation because I've been there. And I find that there's not a lot of individuals in my role who have had the luxury of being able to go across these organizations and then bring it all together you know, I went to work in a research organization, the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. So I, I dove more deeply into research, research, and in particular, that field of cancer for a few years. So again, just building my skill set and my knowledge and, and how I'm using that. Yeah, it's, it's incredible when you step outside your little boundary and go into other elements of the industry, yeah, you just get a way different perspective. And it's really important one to have. Absolutely. I think the, the more people you get to talk to, the different types of stakeholders, you understand people's needs better. And that just helps you be a better leader. Talking to them, but actually having to experience it, like having to solve the problems of the day from that perspective, you know, you see it all from the health hospital perspective, but to see it from the university's perspective or to see it from the research institute's perspective and ha actually have to deal with a particular crisis from that perspective. Yeah, there's nothing like the experiential learning. Absolutely. And on that note of experiential learning, uh, during your time as vice president at McMaster University, you actually completed your MBA at Laurentian University. What motivated you to attain this degree? And what were some of your core learnings during your time 
uh, completing your MBA? So part of it was ego. I felt like I had a gap on my resume that didn't say MBA and lots of people that I was circulating with did. So I needed to do that. And, but it was also, I had been away from a learning mindset for many years and I felt that it would be helpful for me to go dive back into that. And, and, you know, there's great perspectives and great learnings we take away, as you've said, the more people we talk to. So it was an important time for me to kind of brush up on my skill set. And I'm so glad that I did. Now, on the plus side, because I was a CPA, the relationship between the CPA and Laurentian helped me accelerate that MBA. So that was the reason I elected to do the MBA through Laurentian, because we were given so many course equivalents because of our CPA designation. So it helped. It lowered the cost too. Now nice. we're, we're learning all about accounting now and it's, it's a fun time. <laughs> I wish I could learn how to lower the cost of the MBA. That would be a great learning. But uh, did you have to move to Sudbury to do that MBA or, or did you do oh, it distance? Oh no, it was all distance learning. It was okay. Was Zoom before there was Zoom. Perfect. Because <laughs> I was going to ask that a lot of the roles you've taken on in the, the latter chunk of your career have been in this Hamilton, Burlington area. So I was just wondering if there's anything particular about the area that's keeping you here or if there's uh, if you ever factor in geography into the roles you're taking. When my children were young, yes, I factored in geography. I would not factor it in as much anymore. The opportunities are here as well. So it my life was kind of made easy because they, the opportunities that came up just happened to be in this neighborhood. And when I was in London, it was a longer commute. I would stay overnight a couple of nights a week in London, but still be commuting back to here. It's all doable. Then uh, moving on to your career, you jumped from uh, VP to a president CEO role now at Shared Services West. Uh, did you know at a particular time you were now ready to take on this role or what really? I did. I did. When I was at the university, I had a great conversation with Peter George, the then president, who was another great mentor. And I expressed to him that I really wanted to test myself as a president and CEO. And I knew that I would not be able to achieve that in an academic setting because I wasn't a PhD and I didn't have a long research history, so that I was probably going to have to go back into healthcare to achieve that. And he was very supportive, very encouraging. So I, my step back into healthcare was to London as a chief operating officer. Attracted there because the then CEO was on a path towards retirement and thinking that they were succession planning that this would be a great role. It didn't come out the way I would have liked it to. So I stepped away from there, then I went to a research institute and then found my way into this role as president and CEO. Finally getting here. That's perfect. So uh, yeah, we know that shared services takes on a little bit of a different uh, approach than maybe working at a hospital, very much working with a, a wide variety of them and a lot of the logistics and supply chain capacities and just a wide range of areas. So uh, one area of Shared Services West that's very near and dear to my heart is the uh, procurement of innovative technologies. I find that area very interesting. 
So what specifically does Shared Services West do in that area to help uh, with the procurement of innovative technologies, get them into the industry easier? What kind of services is it? So for the most part, our role at Shared Services West is to facilitate the process. You know, we don't make the decision about the technology or the procurement, but we help our teams in the hospitals make those decisions by guiding them through a process that has all the steps and, and all of the ducks in a row so that everything is fair and everything is compliant with the government's set of directives and rules that they have. So we would go to the marketplace and express the interest of our hospitals and what they're hoping to solve or the problem that they have, and then help the vendors bring those solutions to our hospitals and have those conversations and take them through the steps to end up with the innovation that they want for their organization. I noticed this model of uh, shared services is something that also came up uh, in the strategic plan, taking some learnings from other institutions globally, such as Mayo Clinic or NHS was cited in the strategic plan. How common is it for best practices for supply chain management globally to be utilized and then applied to an industry in Canada? And what is the leader or the decisions that goes around that process of creating a new model? Yeah, I'm not sure that we as an industry have been very thoughtful around our global collaborations. So my perspective perhaps was a little bit different when I arrived because I wasn't a supply chain expert. So I was seeking out supply chain expertise and looking for those organizations that were highly regarded in the supply chain world. There's the Gartner Institute out of the US that every year ranks supply chain organizations. They give their top 25 healthcare organizations. And so that's where I started to sort of say, well, what makes you so good at what you do? And what are you doing that we need to think about doing here in Canada? And if you look at a supply chain sort of maturity model, I would say that we are still quite immature here. And there are organizations that are more mature, that have managed their supply chain perhaps better and spent more attention on it. You know, when I think about my time in the hospital or the university or wherever, supply chain was never a strategic initiative of those organizations. You know, those were the people that were shoved somewhere down in the basement next to the morgue and you had to go looking for them. And it was just about buying stuff. There really wasn't a strategy around it. So supply chain is now the buzzword of the pandemic. And people are paying a lot more attention to it and the importance of it. And if you look at any other industry, like retail, supply chain, I mean, there's a VP of supply chain in retail because it's critically important to getting products on shelves so that they can sell them. So for me, arriving in this industry, it was to look for ways to evolve it or to mature it to take an organization that was relatively small and think about our sustainability and how we could deliver greater value to the people that we serve 
So that's why I kind of started down this path of learning as much as I could and doing my quote unquote little R research in this industry. Yeah, you bring up that uh, you came into this role, not the expert of all experts in supply chain. And I'm sure despite how long you've been in the role, like with the breadth of services that shared services provided provides, uh, it, you can't be an expert in all of them with the procurement and the sourcing and data and everything. You can't be exactly leading everything. So I'm just wondering as a CEO and president, how you help guide the organization in areas that you're not specifically an expert in when you've got all these experts working with you and how you manage that? So my role as a CEO, I see it as a strategy role, fundamentally strategy, not operations, but strategy. So the questions I would ask myself around, how do we grow this business? How do we add more value? You know, what are the partners and relationships that we need to have to be successful? Those are the kinds of things that I focus my attention on. And, you know, our strategic plan, you know, has four pillars in it right now, talking about value, talking about people, talking about growth, talking about innovation. So, you know, I have to sell those strategies to my organization. And when people start to understand that those strategies are really around you know, how we change our operations to advance those elements because that will deliver greatest value, that we will grow, we will be a sustainable organization if we're continuously evolving. And those are the four pillars of evolution that we have identified that will really drive us forward. So I work on the strategy side and, and I come from a really operational background. I mean, early in my career, it's about how many widgets and what the numbers look like at the end of the day. And as you progress through your career, you find you spend less time on the operations and more time on the strategy. And sometimes you feel a sense of loss because that paperwork is kind of fun on the operations side and it's more difficult on the strategy side, but it's also very rewarding when you can see an organization shifting and growing. So on that note of, making difficult strategic decisions. During the pandemic, we were well aware that Canada faced significant supply chain disruptions, particularly for personal protective equipment. What roles did uh, Shared Services West play in coordinating supplies with the different hospitals? And has the pandemic shaped uh, the way the company operates moving forward? Well, we are the materials management department for our hospitals. When this organization was formed, our member hospital said, everybody in the tent, you know, we are not going to manage this from each hospital. We're going to manage it as a collective. So we were significantly impacted from day one of the pandemic. We had to source product. We had to move product. We had to you know, build new supply carts. We had to figure out how to lock product up so it wouldn't disappear off shelves. We had to help our organization set up, you know, assessment clinics, vaccination clinics, all of those, all of those things. We were the hands, the feet doing this work for the organizations that we were dealing with. We had major contracts in place with vendors and vendors saying, we don't have the product to give you. So we were 
like bandits in the night trying to find other sources for product and working with other colleagues and other organizations trying to band all of our resources together. It was a crisis on top of a crisis and it was the most exhilarating time in my career. It was wa like watching how people rose to the occasion was so exciting. Yeah, rising to the occasion is definitely the common theme from leaders that we've talked to about the pandemic so far and just a lot of really cool stories about people uh, jumping out of their comfort zone to address uh, all these crises that you bring up that have been popping up. And uh, speaking of jumping around, uh, you talked about throughout your career, you've been in financial roles and logistics roles and supply chain roles. So it's been a, a different variety of skill sets and, and KPIs and types of numbers that you've looked at throughout your career. Is it common to uh, for, for people in financial roles or logistics roles to jump between those? Do they go hand in hand or did you have to learn specific skills to be able to jump between those different departments of an organization? I would say that in healthcare, being a vice president, it is common for you to have different departments in your portfolio that you have to manage. In addition to the finance roles as a VP of administration or finance, you will always have the finance role, but it is very common for you to have other administrative services, whether it's information technology or human resources or security or whatever, those types of business related functions. I also had the opportunity to have many clinical functions as well reporting to me. So that enabled me to, you know, sort of use my skill set in those clinical areas, gain clinical knowledge, and sort of round out my skill set. And then what I find is it, it's the same business tools that you use, that sort of business acumen and skill that you develop is very transportable across various sectors and or industries. Sure, you have to learn a new language, understand the new acronyms, but sound business management will serve you well anywhere you go. I mean, having great communication skills, whether it's you know verbal or written, uh, understanding how to read a financial statement, understanding how to motivate and lead people, how to put together a project plan, those kinds of things you will, you will use everywhere. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. I was interested a little bit on the history of Shared Services West. I know they were founded in 2001, but what really led to the creation of this not-for-profit? Well, some of the incentives came from the provincial government. The idea that you know, if we buy stuff together, we'll get a better price. I mean, you go to Costco, you buy greater volume, the lower unit price. So the same idea was out there. And the government was encouraging organizations to come together. And health really embraced this. They were smart enough to know that this made a lot of sense because there had been a number of group purchasing organizations, in particular MedBuy was created, I think, in the late 80s. I was on their board when I was at St. Joe's in Hamilton, and that was a group of mainly academic organizations, health organizations that came together and said, you know, 
we've all got to buy pacemakers, so why don't we buy them all together? Or we've all got to buy whatever widgets. If we buy them together, we'll get a better price. So that idea of the value being tied up and getting lower cost was what drove the government to offer some incentives for setting up these organizations under what was called the Ontario Buys Program. So they would give you some startup cash to put the organizations together. And that was really the genesis of the shared services across the province. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a very interesting organization. You see a, a good amount of these supply chain and procurement organizations, but I think Shared Services West is really unique in, in the, like I said earlier, the breadth of services it provides and having that core network of hospitals that it's involved with. Um, One of the things that we did yeah. years ago was look at where are there gaps in the supply chain and how could Shared Services West provide a service to fill those gaps? So for example, we know that organizations, quite frankly, needed to do a bit of a house cleaning and operational review of their supply chain, but there really weren't organizations that could come in and do that type of consulting role and organizations that really had the knowledge and skill set. So we created a team here that would go out and do these business operations reviews. And because we do supply chain from beginning to end, you know, policies to to everything that they deal with, we were able to go in and say, you know what, here's where you need to fix things, and we could help them fix it. So it was about seeing a need and going out there and delivering a service. Easy. Easy peasy, as they say. That uh, sounds a lot more complicated than, than easy, but uh, yeah, gets a great job done. So uh, on a less serious note, I, I see that one of the roles that you had throughout your career was a board member with Theater Aquarius. Are you a, are you a theater lover? It's a major uh, performance center in Hamilton, so everyone knows. But yeah, what was your involvement there? Yeah, I was in a drama group in my teenage years through high school, loved performing, and it really helped me to improve my public speaking. I had you know, great teachers in the drama world. You know, everybody's still nervous when they get up in front of a crowd of people. But I can call upon some of my learnings from those days to help me through that. It's important to be able to deliver a message and to be able to speak well. Drama is the best. You can have a lot of fun while you're doing it and, you know, be improving on your own. And so when the Theatre Aquarius opportunity came up, I was working at St. Joe's the VP of finance at Hamilton Health Sciences. She was already on the board. She said to me one day, hey, would you ever be interested in being on the board of theater Aquarius?" I said, absolutely. Not only was it an area that I love, the theater, but it was also going to network me with more people in the Hamilton world because most of the people on the board at the time were Hamilton people. So you have to consider you know, that there's going to be obviously you're volunteering your time, but it was really valuable time well spent. Yeah, I can definitely reiterate that to uh, to the listeners as a former theater kid myself. I uh, can say theater, improv, all that stuff really helps in the business world. Being able to not only present, but, you know, think critically, think problem solve on your feet. And uh, yeah, I think those are very important skills to, to master. So I will uh, I think that's a very cool experience there. You know, and it's a little bit about 
you know, left brain, right brain kind of stuff and your creative side, your technical side, bringing it together. That's fun. Absolutely. And another little maybe closing question here. What advice would you give to someone who's considering pursuing a, a career in healthcare? And with that, that'll be the end of the episode. My advice would be to embrace the crisis and not shy away from it. It is a grueling, grueling industry. It, it's really, really tough healthcare. There's so many challenges. It is so rewarding though at the end of the day when you see yourself come through a considerable crisis and you work very closely with other people who have the same common goal and that is around you know, improving the lives of others. So I, I would say if your values are aligned that way, it's the place for you to be. And you'll know that very early on, whether or not you can handle it. But it's tough, really tough. It's not for the faint of heart to go into healthcare. And that's a, that is a beautiful message to finish off the episode here. Great careers all, all around and, and uh, great to learn about yours today, Karen. Well, it is a pleasure meeting both of you. I think what you're doing here is exceptional. And thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I'm really honored by it. Thank you.